Chad, shut up. Is your dog's uh, name Chad? Yes. This is... This way, let's see if I can find him. This is, this is him. This is Chad. He looks like a Chad. <laughs> yeah, Chad, shut up. Cool. Are you just going to want Chad, like, out of the room, or...? You know, we can, it'll just provide some, some color. We're real people. With, yeah, exactly. With, with dogs, real people with real lives. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. We're real people um, living out of Swiss hotels, you know, uh, with dogs yeah, and Chad with your, like, at us. Yeah, your, like, luxury, your luxury dog with its fancy haircut. Exactly. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Do you and Chad go to the same barber? No, he has a special barber in town, but he's he's pretty he's pretty cheap. Like everything everything in Italy is pretty cheap. It's like like forty dollars or something or thirty dollars oh, for him. Incredible deal. All right, everyone, and welcome to the latest episode of the Network Age. I'm Bitchel Rissen, and I'm here with my co-host Tim Mipov and Nilrun Mardux. And uh, Nilrun, I think today we're going to start out by talking about your project. We've discussed in the past that you're working on. Um, Aleph, uh, a sort of network age idea in El Salvador, yep. and we wanted to get into it a little bit. And specifically, we were talking about the work you've been doing on a on a DAO law in El Salvador. Do you mind uh, telling us a bit more about that? Yeah, it's really fascinating. Um, it's basically just this kind of broader context of West, especially Western economies, kind of. Um, either cracking down explicitly on crypto or just making it really hard um, in, ter- in terms of getting regulatory certainty on crypto. And we've talked a lot about that in the past, right? Like we've had our episode on Tornado Cash. We had the update on Gary Gensler, um, chairman of the SEC recently. And because of all that action that we kind of talked about, we'd um, doing a lot of work, especially my dad, Stephen Gelbach, on finding a good jurisdiction for crypto businesses, specifically um DAOs, which are, I think will be, you know, they're a flexible framework. Um, and I think there's a lot of different ways you could do a DAO. I mean, an easy one to think about is just the Urbit Foundation, right? Where you have the Galactic Senate, they vote in a board, and then the board votes in a CEO. So that looks pretty similar to a normal kind of corporate business. Um, but then you also have, you know, Vitalik and Curtis have kind of written articles about DAOs extensively as well. So the kind of broad theme, I wouldn't kind of get too caught up in the term DAO. I would just kind of think about it as we're building um, jurisdictions that are friendly to crypto. So as the West gets um, cracks down on crypto, we're able to have places where we can domicile our businesses. And through that process of trying to find where to go, that's where we discovered El Salvador is a really good option, both where we can set up today, but also where we can move to have them update their commercial laws to explicitly um, allow DAOs in a way similar to how Wyoming um, allowed DAOs under their LLC framework. So that's kind of the broad context. And I can kind of go into like why that's um, really, really important for crypto today. So what I'm wondering when you say that right off the bat is I'm somewhat familiar with like Wyoming's Dow law and it doesn't, you know, I don't think it was expected to and doesn't seem to be providing any real sort of, you know, big advantages or protections for groups operating in the U.S. So right off the bat, what I'm wondering is what's different about this thing in El Salvador? Like, is it sharing some cosmetic similarities but intended to achieve very different goals or is there anything else you want to expand on there? Yeah, I think the big difference is the difference between a state 
like the Wyoming versus um, a actual jurisdiction, a sovereign country like El Salvador. And so the issue that we see in the U.S. is while Wyoming passed a nice DAO law, it didn't actually prevent the CFTC saying that any governance token holder is personally liable for the actions of that DAO. Um, it also didn't prevent the Treasury from sanctioning Tornado Cash. So it basically didn't rein in any of the federal institutions in the U.S., um, whereas a DAO law in at the sovereign level, um, you know, working with an actual sovereign nation like El Salvador provides that legal protection. So I think it's like it's sort of analogous to if the U.S. had passed a DAO law, like in the U.S. to get real protection, we'd pretty much need a federal congressional act um, legalizing DAOs. And Wyoming's just, you know, at the state level wasn't sufficient to prevent these actions we're seeing. Whereas by working with a sovereign like El Salvador, we do get that legal protection that was sort of promised to us in the Wyoming Dow Law. Yeah, well, specifically, we, we're building it into the El Salvador commercial code. Um, so it actually will not, you know, be labeled a security. Um, so explicitly labeling it as just part of regular commercial business within El Salvador. And this is getting pretty high level adoption or sort of reception within the El Salvadorian government. So this is interesting because this is part of a much larger plan for El Salvador to pitch itself as a sort of Web3 first uh, receptive economy. And, you know, obviously they're accepting Bitcoin as official currency across um, across the country. And I'm wondering sort of what you're seeing on the ground. Like, is this working? Is this attracting people to El Salvador? Obviously, you're there and some of the people you're working with, but is this transformation that they're looking for starting to happen? And I don't know, what, what do you think are some of the implications of that? Yeah, I'd say largely, um, you know, definitely successful in some regards, like, you know, off-ramps for crypto work really well in El Salvador. You can just go to an ATM and get $1,000 out um, from like a Chivo ATM. So in that way, it's great. You can also get money into the country very easily. So, you know, normally international banking is a massive nightmare. Um, the fact that they have Bitcoin as a payment rail means it's very easy to do business as a foreigner. I would say at kind of the more micro level at like the sort of how is this helping El Salvadorians, you know, it's helping them with remittance payments, but I, I don't think the impact's been as big as people are hoping. I think, and I, I think there's a lot of reasons why. I think it relates to the Bitcoin community, how it is, it does have a culture of sort of hodling versus investing. Um, so I'd say when you look at like, yeah, so I would say like overall, um, you know, tourism up 80% from 2019. So it did boost tourism a lot. I think it's kind of interesting because I've only been here, I've been here three times now. Um, but we're just entering dry season like now. Like it rained every single day, usually just in the evening, but it rained every day up until um, October. And now it hasn't rained basically since October started. So we enter, we're entering dry period, and that's when it also gets cold up north. So I'm kind of curious to kind of get a feel for the tourism aspects of it once we get into high season. But from kind of like a investment in local business, it's been okay. It's like led to some growth, but it's not like it's not at like a Dubai level yet. So for our listeners, in order to recap, El Salvador made Bitcoin legal tender, and it was very much their idea that this would spur like some investment. And we may have even discussed this in a prior, in a prior episode. Um, and that didn't really happen, aside from the tourism impacts, maybe just from getting their name out there, some increased like safety. They're not like getting, let's say, you know, Dubai levels 
um, of in of inflows. And it sounds like you think that that's because Bitcoiners don't really, you know, invest or build much stuff aside from hodling. And I think mm-hmm. that's about right. But what I want to ask is because I'm very familiar with what they're doing, and I've I think I and a lot of other people have been looking for okay, what's the new hot uh, jurisdiction for running stuff? And my first question is. Are you expecting that in order to get the legal protections from this DAO law, let's say you want to launch a project that might have a token uh, or something, you know, something like that with some better crypto aspects and that you think might have risk in the U.S. because they basically try to nerf all of crypto. Do you think that like the founders should be living there to get like the legal protections? And then also what happens if the U.S. is like, you know, ha ha ha, nice try, like, fuck you, we're still going to go after you. Yeah, I think it's definitely a risk spectrum, and I would definitely advise talking to lawyers, for example, Stephen Galebach, about this exact thing. I think, you know, the lowest risk would be, yes, you're just living out of El Salvador, you have all of your operations in El Salvador. I think from, you know, from discussions as well as, yeah, I think overall, um, you can get a lot of the protection through the setup we've um, kind of struck upon, and... I would say I don't really want to go too, too far into like the exact specifics, but no, you won't have to live in the country. I, I would advise launching from it to reduce legal risk, but not necessarily live in. So is El Salvador prepared to like go to bat for founders who live there? Or are they going to be like, oh, whoa, like, you know, the SEC doesn't like something that's going on here. Better defer to them. Yeah. And so as we designed the Dow Law, for example, a big question the El Salvadorian government had was, is this going to be easy for us to defend if, if and when the U.S. government starts badgering us about it? And so that's why a lot mm-hmm. of it was modeled on the Wyoming Dow Law so that the El Salvadorian government, if they were pressed by America... Um, could say, like, look, we based it off of the same general law as you've already passed in one of your states. Like, this is consistent with American law and rules. And kind of, and I think that's a pretty strong position to take, that you're more or less modeling it on American law. Yeah, I have a lot more questions I sort of, you know, like to get into. Maybe we should save that for another time when it's passed that would go into, because I can see a lot of potential problems here where a jurisdiction says, like, you know, we're modeling it on that, but then let's say the SEC comes and says, oh, sure, Wyoming has that Dow law, but this is totally different. This is securities. Um, Like, we see it this way, and then, you know, the jurisdiction, like El Salvador in this case, defers and gives you up. That seems like a really big concern when you have a lot of U.S. agencies that are ready to take incredibly broad positions and have this sort of default presumption of, like, authority. Right. That, I think that's the thing people are really worried about with sort of falling in love with the jurisdiction is that that U.S. weight of like, I don't care what you said. Um, or at least all, this is how we see it now. So get with the program. And I think that that feels uh, especially relevant when implicitly a lot of these policies are designed to attract foreign investment, American investment, mm-hmm. Americans moving to the country and America, you know, is interested in protecting the ways that it gets its its money, especially if it's taking, mm-hmm. you know, U.S. U.S. citizens down to El Salvador to do these things, which I think sort of leads us to something else we are interested in, which is just what does it look like for all of these people to be going abroad to work? You know, we call it um, digital nom- nomadivism, but it's uh, a little bit different than that now. We're talking about establishing larger community ties. And I guess one question is like, 
is that actually happening? Is something people talk about, you know, the death of, of cities and tech workers moving abroad, and then later getting into what does that mean and, and how do you do that responsibly? Totally. I think we should start by noting that large waves of migration, both sort of um, unskilled, but also skilled and rich are not a new thing. Like off the top of my head, obviously, you know, we can think of the late 19th century ones to the U.S., which were mostly from like Southern and Eastern Europe. Um, and then, you know, Jews from the Russian territories, um, you know, heavily. And those Hell were yeah. like, you know, much more, and those were much, yeah, it's Bishop Ritson, like shout out. <laughs> um, and, th- and those were much Ritzenstein. more like on the, <laughs> on the like sort of lower <laughs> you know, maybe lower skilled end or going for economic opportunity, then you have like, you know, other waves like, um, you know, let's say like, you know, the wealthier Jewish waves after uh, the Nazi takeovers in Europe or like, you know, the Russian emigres after the revolution, or you you can go through a number of these. Even the posts that have all kinds of different patterns. And I think that we should at least note there's a chance that right now there's, that there's a large, the conditions are right for a large emigration from things like, you know, the U.S., Europe, and I guess you could broadly call them the Anglo colonies, and then you have the Chinese and Indian diasporas, uh, two countries that are better on a variety of dimensions, given that they're flexible. And the things that I notice when I look at it, first of all, that that sort of stand out to me are a few sort of important variables. One, definitely we're talking uh, more about high earners. This is a more like Mm -hmm. affluent, like emigration wave, which is, you know, not unprecedented, but has its own conditions. Uh, Also, it's uh, it's younger. It's on the like probably people are overwhelmingly probably like 20 to 40 years old, like some, you know, going up to 50. Um, yep. families are probably starting to enter it and they're, oh, and the people are also overwhelmingly either directly programmers or what I would call like, you know, the programming adjacent apparatus, like, you know, startup founders, um, managers, product people, you know, every, everything sort of around there. Content sort creators. Of, yeah. Ex- content creators, like sort of, sort of knowledge workers, but a little, a little bit narrower and more like geared around all of the economic value that programming generates, which is quite substantial. Are there any other sort of parts of that? Like, you know, characterization you guys would want to like add to no that sounds right to me i think something that i uh think about that separates um the type of worker you're talking about from i don't know other sort of white collar workers that theoretically could work abroad like so you know like law offices worked perfectly fine during the pandemic when when no one Mm -hmm. was meeting in person but those are not the type of people who are in this demographic and i think that there is an ethos among tech companies and coding adjacent people where workers are interested in and demanding the freedom to move around and work where they see fit and sort of let their work speak for themselves uh, as opposed to needing to be in an office. So I think it's it's not all white collar workers, as you're saying, it's really there is an ethos in this in this industry. Mm. Yeah, and this is a huge scale. Like, we're talking 2% of LinkedIn job postings were remote um, pre-pandemic, and now it's about 20% um, from the latest wow. surveys. So that have, yeah, so it's, we're almost like a 10x And then if you take that, rise. and if you, if you filtered that for programming and programming adjacent, it's probably a mu- even much higher percentage, just because of how yep, much of LinkedIn yep. is stuff that's not in that world. 
and even yeah, and even as Mitchell said, like you know, law firms, like a ton of the service industry, like it just it's probably about half or more of the U.S. economy could easily just work remotely, and I think that's like. Um, you know, I think that's just like a, that's just massive scale. Like even if it's a small, even if it's a percent of the population, that's, that is a permanent massive group. Um, and yeah, it's one of, I think, I kind of think of things in terms of like the different sources of jobs, right. In terms of how you could do agriculture and then industrial. And I think industrial is one of the hardest to immigrate to because you had to have these like really stable countries like the U S and Western Europe to move to. Um, and I think now with knowledge work, you have a lot more options for where to go and that really changes immigration more broadly. Okay. So we've established that the conditions are there that they that people could leave in uh, and sort of what categories of people that would likely touch. The next question in terms of establishing the preconditions is why would they leave? Um, obviously, I live abroad and I have for a while, but I've also, you know, in the last five years lived substantially like in the U.S. also. So and my reasons for leaving aren't sort of overwhelming. I'm pretty neutral as to whether I'd be in the U.S. or not. So what do you think, let's say nil run, let's say for external migration, and Bitchell, let's ask you about sort of just for internal migration since you moved from New York to Montana. What are the things that are making people want to migrate, let's say, out of U.S. cities for internal or external migration? Mm, I think the first wave has really been standard of living to a large extent. And I think um, so that's like basically living twice as well for half as much. It's getting better weather. It's like living in the mountains. It's living by the beach. Um, it's that aspect has really been the first wave. And, you know, that's fairly similar to just what we saw with digital nomading more broadly. I see this kind of groundswell coming up of more like purpose-driven immigration that I think will come soon. And a lot of projects are kind of talking about this, right? You have Praxis, you have Prospera, what we're doing with Aleph now with our embassy house. So I think first wave digital nomading more and just sort of for standard of living. I think the second wave that we're seeing is people trying to think about how to do basically community from the ground up and build from scratch and whether that's sort of at a large scale at first or if it's more organic and bottom up. Mitchell, why did you do the internal migration from New York to Montana? Well, I moved originally because I went to an MFA program at the University of Montana, but I, there was a decision there where I was choosing between go, staying in New York or go, in going to an MFA in a city or something like that or moving mm -hmm. across the country. And there was a time, you know, when I was like, New York's the only city in the world, baby. I'm never getting out of here. And, um, I, you know, for me, there's some very particular reasons like nature and, um, but you subsequently the, stayed as well. Yeah. Yeah. I'm, I'm still hanging out here. So I, I think that my reasons, it was, it was almost like the program drew me first, but then I stayed for a lot of the same reasons that no run was talking about is that I just enjoyed better access to to beautiful things my quality of life was better uh, both on a simple what you can afford but I, I liked being not in the city it was a lot less mm -hmm. stressful and I think that being here is interesting because you you see a, a ton of migration that has happened in the U.S. during COVID I mean Montana mm. real estate prices have just you know doubled or more you know the same type of thing is happening 
in Boise. And there is, like, a complicated relationship between, like, you know, Montanans and uh, the people who are moving there. You know, you say you're from California. You could get in a fistfight pretty easily here. <laughs> yeah, um, yeah. And it's, I don't know, it's, a, it's an interesting and, like, still evolving dynamic, I think. It's sort of interesting because when you, you look at Montana, it's a massive state, right? Like, it's probably twice the size of Turkey or more. Uh, I think Texas is the same size as Turkey. Wait, seriously? So uh, yeah, so Montana's yeah, not if you twice do, the size of... Montana's smaller than Texas. Uh, it's yeah. smaller than Texas. Okay, it's roughly the size of significant, 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 significant. Hey, big state. Don't Texas. talk about my... This is a great state. Big state. <laughs> Biggest state in the country. Biggest state all in the right, world. All right. I thought it was honestly a lot bigger than Texas, but all right, I guess I've been out of the country way too long. But the broader point is like, this is. And everyone ton. turns off the podcast in disgust and never listens again. <laughs> yeah. And, uh, but yeah, it's interesting because like that's a huge state. So it's sort of this interesting thing where, you know, I saw the same thing in New Hampshire happening. Like I had a lake house in New Hampshire I'd go to a lot during COVID at the beginning before I left the country. And yeah, real estate went up a lot. But there's this interesting. But then I see like El Salvador and like one of my friends built a like big cafe overlooking the volcano in two months, right? From like start to finish. And it was 50K to build the whole thing. So there's sort of this interesting, like we have a lot of land, but it's interesting internally within the US, especially in the Rockies, it seems to be very hard to actually uh, migrate there without causing massive increases in price. Yeah, I, I think that's true. I think, you know, there's one problem is that, and this is is true in other sort of major work abroad cities like Mexico City and Lisbon is that people want to move to the same places, right? Like there's plenty of places in Montana you can still buy for a song if you're willing to live there, but that's not where most people want to be. And so I think that that is, you know, something we've talked about with the the sort of coming of the network age. If everybody wants to be in the same place, that creates problems. How do you create these communities that are more spread out and linked by uh, different things. If we're going to be talking about whether people will do this and whether there's impetus, I take it as a given at this point that some degree of infrastructure is necessary because the amount of people who are willing and able to move somewhere that has limited infrastructure is vanishingly small and you can just sort of round off and that definitely doesn't become a trend. So if like, you know, the US and the Europe were the only places with good enough infrastructure or where you could develop infrastructure, I would just be like this, this whole trend is dead on arrival. And the entire reason we're looking at it is that you know, it is there. In terms of other reasons to live, I think you talked about the purpose-driven one, uh, one, Phil, and um, I'll get into that a little bit in my hesitations there, or at least things that have been problematic to this point. I think there's also things like, um, particularly if the area is undeveloped with the potential to develop it, you get a frontierish aspect, which does appeal mm-hmm. to a lot of people, and there, there's significant demand for that uh, among a certain segment of, like, humans. Um, and then also, I think, potentially a sort of the kind of legal financial uh, reasons that have drawn people mm-hmm. to sort of the independent city states and free trade zones that kind of exploded over the last 50 years, like Singapore, Hong Kong, Dubai, and those. Like there's a proven model there. If there's a business activity people want to do and you can make that lower friction, there, there's, op- there's opportunities there as well. So we've established that the conditions are such that it's possible to imagine a large-scale exodus or emigration for a certain class of remote and tech worker, either from the U.S. Um, or from cities to more rural areas. But 
I wonder if we think that this is actually going to happen such that you might, you know, you might call it a, I don't know, a history book phenomena. Is this going to create new waves and launch the network age? And I guess part of me is, is sometimes skeptical that like people who, especially people who are as incredibly comfortable as most of the types of workers that we're describing are, are going to be, to be willing to um, overhaul their, their lives for, for these sorts of benefits that we're talking about. Mm. Yeah, I think it'll absolutely happen. I think this total scale might not be that huge, but it's sort of like the Jews leaving Europe um, because of sort of Nazi takeover that had a massive impact on the US and the world. So we're kind of talking like similar quality, just in terms of like incredibly um, entrepreneurial, ambitious, high energy people. And so, yeah, I absolutely think um, that it'll have a huge impact, even though I don't think the over like all percent will be massive. Um, in terms of like the kind of scale that I'm seeing, you can kind of get a sense for it for like from Mexico, from Portugal. Those are the ones who have really embraced um, this kind of work remote and attract um, people via digital nomad visas. And, you know, it's having, they're attracting very, very large numbers. Like Lisbon, I think Mexico, it's probably in the order of about 300,000 or so people into Mexico. Um, Portugal, it's probably more like 100 to 200,000. Um, so yeah, it's definitely happening. I think um, I think there's kind of like questions in terms of like why didn't it happen before, but we can kind of, I'm kind of curious, Tim, if you think this is also inevitable from your kind of perception inside of Europe right now in Italy. Okay, so my thing here is that I get what Bitchell is saying and why people could be skeptical because even I in some moments am skeptical, but the biggest thing I take from Mexico and Portugal right now, which are probably two of the biggest destinations, is no matter sort of how skeptical I am, I think what those examples are showing is that actually there's even more demand that there, than there is supply, and there's actually mm. just not very much supply right now in the world of places X US and certain like certain parts of let's talk in US terms. So there's not many options X US that meet a few conditions. One, you know, good infrastructure where Americans feel like they can go there and somewhat not miss a beat. There'll be like an expat community and we can get into the, you know, problematic aspects of that later on. Um, there'll be um, like, you know, sort of the infrastructure they're used to in terms of various services and restaurants and, what you know, the, the things people sort of expect to have in a city. And then also that those locations have reasonably streamlined visa processes, where reasonably streamlined is I can do, you know, one or two embassy visits in my home country and collect some documents that aren't too intrusive, like maybe bank statements and uh, like FBI background check, which is easy to do in the US, you know, something like something like that. And then pretty much just as long as I meet those things, give me a visa that lets me that lets me live there. And aside from Mexico and Portugal, there's not a ton of others that actually meet that once you get down to it, usually because the bureaucratic hurdle is too high, so they fail the easiness of the, um, you know, bureaucratic process part. 
or because the infra in the country isn't good enough. I think like El Salvador is probably like sort of losing on both of those right now. Argentina is pretty easy to stay in indefinitely, but definitely loses on the, you can do everything you want. Like people want to be able to buy a car without having to like go on the black market or have an Argentinian friend or do something, you know, random. Um, and so my current thing is, I really feel like, I don't know how high the demand goes, but I'm pretty confident it's much higher than the current supply. Aren't a lot of, like, Eastern European countries, I don't know, what about, like, you know, Croatia and Georgia or something? I, I so feel like they have- this, is, this is where you get a little bit into the practicalities make it fall apart. So Croatia has one of the most notoriously bad bureaucracies in Europe, where it's actually, in theory, they have this digital nomad thing, but I haven't known many or any people who have actually gone through with it. Georgia has the problem right now that actually a lot of people were going there. Their infra is okay-ish. It's gotten really bad now because it's one of the only places Russians can easily go. So they're just clogging it up and spending, sending like uh, prices like sky high and Georgians are pretty mad about it. Um, and their, their infra was always, was, you know, it could have been okay, but it's, it's a little hard. So those, they're sort of failing some of those tests, which I think is limiting supply right now. I just saw that Malta I, I, has a good uh, program, which, uh, you know, shout out to our fans in Malta. We're one of the biggest <laughs> lot, podcasts yeah. there. So we have at least mm, one. Retweet fan. us. We want to get to number one in Malta by next <laughs> yeah. week, this coming episode. Um, <laughs> I would say, like, I don't know. I think part of it is it's sort of the old American way of looking at where to go. And that because of, like, industrialization and because of the pre-remote um, work dynamics of jobs, you basically had to look at cities. Like, you know, a t- at Assembly, so many people had previously been living in cities like SF, Austin, New York, and so many had, like, gone, especially people with families, away from cities. So I think if you actually broaden it to just think about, like, towns and what we really need um, in order to make kind of in order to have a good life, right? Like, do we need a city anymore? I don't think so. I mean, if you look at, for example, Puerto Escondido, um, there's a lot of families who have moved there from America, from Europe, who have set up their lives in a pretty small town because they had everything they actually needed there. And we don't really need to kind of be limited by kind of the same infrastructure requirements that we had in the industrial age. I strongly disagree with this take. Not that I I, I agree with the base premise of it that you don't need a full city to provide all of that infrastructure and people go places. But even if you expand what you're talking about to like, it can, it doesn't have to be a city as long as it meets those. There's still very few places that meet that intersection of residency plus enough services. And even if you accept that, like uh, Puerto Escondido example, the problem there is that that's just like one small like town part of it. And it would be hard for that to like take that much more of an influx of people at which point, at which point people would have to go and start making their own kind of expat infrastructure at which point that's a high activation thing to the point where you're really talking about, Oh, some expats need to go there and effectively generate more supply. Like all your, the stuff you're saying is actually making me more convinced that the limiter here is supply of places to go. Uh, or you can, you can rephrase that as a, a, limiter, a limiter of the types of people who will go and create that supply, but they amount to much the same well, thing. I think we need to dig into it, like the infrastructure, the visas, because like um, most countries will let you be there on a business visa. Like El Salvador's we just vetted yesterday, and it's about, you know, 2K for a business visa there. And like when you think about the tax savings alone, like that really isn't 
a finan- it's not a financial barrier whatsoever. So I think like I just don't really see kind of I think we actually have really good visa options in a lot of places. I don't think visa is the constraint. So yeah, let's. I don't want to make this too much us going back and forth, but. Um, I, I've looked into these things like a lot and El Salvador is one place, but there aren't a ton of others. And even theirs is poorly documented. And I don't know anyone who's really done it. The one, the, the business visa ones that are well documented and that people have done like Dubai, people use them all the time, but that's, that's another example of, you know, their supply is getting pretty saturated in terms of how much extra capacity, like, you know, the city of Dubai could take in. So I think it's great that El Salvador is adding this. But this is, I think you're sort of taking what I'm saying the wrong way, which is I think you think I'm saying that this kind of migration won't happen. And what I'm saying is that once those processes are well documented and mm. there's sort of easy enough plug-in infrastructure, uh, the, the current example suggests that people actually will go to them, like, in pretty big numbers. And I can see that, especially because a lot of the people are just like Googling it and they're not actually abroad yet. So when you do just kind of look at it from 30,000 feet um, from the U.S., like that is the general impression. And like a good example of this is Argentina. When I was looking at Argentina from 30,000 feet, I was just like, okay, I definitely can't go there. It seems annoying to get like visas. And then when I actually hang out there in Buenos Aires, it's like, oh, actually, you can stay as long as you want. You just pay a $75 fine, like they they want foreigners there, it's, and then there's just a huge capacity worth, to retain them. That's, that, that's true, and I think if that became a well-known option, that would probably expand. Mm. There is some substantial segment of Americans who wouldn't feel comfortable sort of staying somewhere illegally under, under any circumstances. But I think, like, that's, you know... I think we've established that there actually probably is significant demand for this. And what we're getting into is that there's a lot of supply issues. And I think that Mm -hmm. those supply issues bring up really interesting topics because those immediately, unavoidably get to these sort of more normative moral issues um, or even ethical issues, if you want to call it not moral, of what's the best way to do this? And And if you want to treat it in sort of a moral sense, how can you do it in a way that's productive for the places that people are going? And if you want to do it in a purely sort of real politique sense, how can you do this? How can this migration happen in a way that's sustainable where jurisdictions keep wanting it? And I think Bitchell has sort of a lot of immediate thoughts there or concerns or just gut reactions when he sees people like this type of like, let's call it tech migration, uh, broadly defined going to places. So Bitchell, why don't you get into some of the stuff that sort of bugs you here? Yeah. I mean, I don't think my concerns are particularly insightful or revolutionary. Right. But I think that it's easy to have a gut reaction of, Oh, this is a group of wealthy privileged people who want to move to a place that is cheaper, where people are poorer because they can live better and drive up prices. And largely, in in my experience, both living abroad and traveling abroad, a lot of these communities do not integrate um, into their local communities. Oftentimes, don't learn the language or you know invest in the places that they are, which can lead to a lot of resentment. And I've seen that in. Um, you know, what we might call a first world country like Korea. And I've seen that across Latin America as well. And so I think that it's a really exciting time for people to be able to move around and build connections beyond their nation state that they were born into. But I think that there are ways to do this more and less responsibly. And if ultimately I, um, 
I don't care to come down on the side of things being better for rich people just to make things better for rich people. Yeah, I kind of wonder if that's because um, the countries never really gave opportunities to those people. Like, we know Western Europe and the U.S. gave opportunities for immigrants to thrive, right? And, you know, just for the record, right, those immigrant groups were initially pretty uh, distinct for the first generation, and then over time they assimilated. Um, And so I just kind of wonder, you know, like, was Korea even giving any opportunities for you guys to integrate into their society, like, as citizens, (laughs) as people who could own businesses? (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) No, Korea is notoriously resistant to that. They're they're, they're their own thing. Um, They they deserve to be taken by storm. Or even worse. That's that's accurate. Um, And that, like... I do think, though, that there are cultures that are more open to that. Obviously, you know, America is historically more open to that. Uh, Latin America also has, like, pretty strong immigrant traditions in a lot of places. Like, if you – like, Argentina is just just an incredibly Mm -hmm. immigrant-based country. Like, the vast majority of the population, both from European inflows and other parts of South America. Yeah, it's like 80% Uh, ethnically Italian, yeah. Oh, I know. It's it's that high? Wow. It's really Um, high. Yeah, wow. Um, And so, and I think even other parts have a lot more than is known. Even, you know, Colombia had substantial ones, Chile, like Central America. It's it's a thing in those parts. And so then the question becomes more, I I think I would move it to, how do you make it sus- like sustainable? And the, the problem that, in, that immediately jumps to my mind when I look at, let's say, let's look at two different kinds of cases. Let's say I look at... Um, Maybe Mexico and El Salvador. So in Mexico, what I see as a big sort of problem or limiter is just that there's significant safety issues in a lot of the country, even within cities. And that creates this thing where a lot of the real estate, even though the country is very large and has decent degree of infrastructure, is undesirable. And like both Mexicans and like immigrants, you know, don't want to live there and it costs more to live there. And so if a lot of Americans come, they go to like two or three districts of Mexico City because uh, they're not going to move there to live in another part. And that like, of course, you know, crowds everyone else out price-wise, but more more than that creates like an unsustainable situation where you have sort of a carrying capacity for how many uh, expats you could absorb um, while keeping any kind of balance. Mm -hmm. Portugal has like a similar kind of problem where, again, the country has a fair amount of infrastructure in a lot of places, but the people who are coming in for tech reasons pretty much just want to live in Lisbon or Kashkaish or everything sort of, you know, in the Lisbon up to the coast area. And so, again, you get this big carrying capacity problem where even if the locals were totally fine with it, you can just only take in so many people there logistically in terms of road structure, like the number of people that the Lisbon area was built to handle. And you're seeing that right now in terms of it becoming very hard to find rentals there. So... Let me ask it in this way. What do you, th- let's say you're, you take something like El Salvador and you're giving recommendations to their president, which I don't, are, you, are you talking like directly to them? Um, El Presidente? Uh, yeah, at the presidential level. Yeah, yeah, El Presidente. Like, um, like what, what would you recommend for creating a sustainable environment, both in terms of benefiting the people there and also being able to take a substantial enough influx to have a real effect on the country if they do desire like an economic effect? Mm. So I try to attract like uh, the equivalent of like Jews and Mennonites, where you're getting people who are like entrepreneurial, who want, who have low time preference, who want to invest into the country. 
um, families, so entrepreneurs, families, people who aren't just like transitory. Um, so I would structure visas accordingly to kind of incentivize that. For example, Portugal had the golden visa where you had to invest a fair amount of money. Um, and then I would kind of yeah, no, think notably, about, Portugal's are probably too expensive for what El Salvador wants. Your average tech worker yeah. is not going to be able to throw down, you know, $300,000. Those are much more often targeted at, let's say like, you know, Chinese and Russian people with a lot of money who want like free, good access to Europe. Yep. Yep. But the main point being that you can structure your, basically your immigration and visa policies to get the kind of people you want. So really focus on people who will be making investments into the country. And ideally like living there just because they're going to have, they're going to be much better at investing and kind of thinking about, you know, how to help El Salvador grow if they're living there. Um, and then the second thing is about sort of carrying capacity. Cause like, yeah, San Salvador does have a limited carrying capacity. Like there's a certain number of like really nice houses on the Hills. Um, we're in one of them, but then you have, you go outside San Salvador and like most of the country is undeveloped. It's just like farmland. Um, and I, I think that's why they were kind of, I think it was a smart idea for them to look into the Bitcoin city as like a concept of building a new city from scratch, basically making it like almost like separating, um, the influx of immigrants immigrants um, into kind of a part of the country that is undeveloped, uh, mostly farmlands. So you're not really jacking up real estates for the average person. Mitchell, how does that strike you in terms of solution? It sounds like a very sort of Yimby-ish solution to like, say we have this like extra space here, let's like focus on building for people. How does that strike you in terms, like, do you care as much about those people integrating with the country if they're in places that wouldn't be developed otherwise and probably have positive economic effects for like people in general if they're developed? Or does that still like have parts that uh, you would want to address in a different in a different way? Well, I think all these things are complicated, right? And as with anything, it's it's hard to know exactly what the effects will be until you see it. Um, I guess my gut reaction is that when, when someone comes into a country or, or any new community, right, you want to strike a balance between, um, understanding, investing in and integrating with that community and bringing whatever is important and vital to you, right? Like you don't want to sacrifice those things and you don't want to remain outside of it. And so I think mm -hmm. that there is a danger, I don't know, if this like Bitcoin city of it just becoming like something that happens in, in Costa Rica, right, where these little surf downs are just entirely like hippie Americans and, mm -hmm. you know, no nobody really like Americans visiting don't really like it because it, it feels fake and like people, like Costa Ricans don't really like it because it's, it's just like a little colony inside their country. And so I think you would... I don't know exactly what the answer is to um, avoid that, but I think that asking asking these questions as you go along and trying to find ways to to bridge the um, the cultural gap is important. The thing that strikes me as we talk about this is that I I note that we're very much getting into if I were king of the country territory and making these very optimizing type policies. Unseating El well, Presidente. So well, so the funny thing is, I, I know there's definitely sort of writers or philosophers who lapse into this mode very easily. Probably, you know, Curtis Yarvin is very notable for like instantly lapsing into if I were king of like X region, like thinking mode all the time. But that said, when you talk about countries that are smaller on the order of, you know, a few million people, like I think El Salvador is six, you actually, it actually is tractable to start doing that. And it actually does 
in my opinion, sort of become incumbent on the government to think like, okay, maybe we don't want to have Costa Rica hippie surf towns. Maybe we want people to come and get significant advantages, but also be absorbed into our culture over time. And Mm. you start to brainstorm pretty hard about what are the mechanics you would put in place. And the target is always going to be like, you definitely want to have some kind of it doesn't have like thing where, you know, kids are going to some sort of like schools that are the same as like locals is where you like sort of like everything starts at like the schools. And if stuff is safe enough, parents will do that in general. And I think, um, I would definitely, or even, you know, sports activities, other stuff, I would be looking very hard at how do I assimilate, you know, this sounds horrible. I sound like, sounds very predatorial. Like how do I assimilate their children? Um, (laughs) But, but I think that's, that's absolutely like when I start, you know, I have like a kid and when I start thinking of places I would live, like if I were going to him yet. Uh, no, specifically because I, I'm sorry to any of our many Italian listeners, but I don't really want to like assimilate him into like Italian small town life. It's not very, <laughs> not very inspiring to me and we probably will like opt out of that. And so I would be like, okay, you know, do I, if we, do we end up living in Dubai? There's plenty of international stuff there and I would feel fine with it. If we lived later in El Salvador and it was like, good, would I, I would actually probably feel a lot more fine there about doing something, you know, assimilationist if the, you know, if the schools or the sports programs uh, we're good. And this is something that I think, you know, one notable aspect of this migration wave, it has a lot of single, uh, men and women in their like, you know, early, mid, late twenties, uh, early thirties, but there are families also. And I think that's sort of a notable thing about it. And I think there's a chance for a jurisdiction to win on providing a very like supportive family atmosphere that also lets them, I guess, avoid the Latin American anti-pattern of an isolated upper class, which incidentally, the funny thing about Latin America is they're already kind of screwed in terms of having this like isolated extra elite class that like does not interact as well. And I think that I I would almost want to be trying to sort of start fresh and use this to create some mixing at the lower levels if I were, you know, if I were doing this as a country. Yeah, I think for sure. And and I think just like having talked to parents in Latin America, you know, parents in Mexico, parents in Costa Rica and parents in um, El Salvador, it, it is interesting just like, th- like there's already enough where, you know, people coming from like Boston and like Ivy League type backgrounds feel good sending their kids into at least some schools in Mexico City. Um, of course, that probably does have the sort of stratified normal Latin American elite type uh, divide. But then, yeah, the same with El Salvador. You know, I was talking to um, a couple guys who actually are moving back. Like, there's a decent number of El Salvadorians moving back to the country now that it's safe. Uh, now that, you know, there's sort of, it's part of the Bitcoin law, but just higher safety where you feel like, okay, my kid can actually go into these schools. Um, mm-hmm. And yeah, so it's both locals, it's both ethnic El Salvadorians moving back after, you know, like, three to four decades. And it's also um, Americans who are moving in, sending their kids to actual local schools. It's very interesting. This is an aspect I haven't hadn't thought of earlier in the conversation when we talked about supply, uh, the things of like sort of supply for family infrastructure being a really big thing. And, you know, I think people do even move to yep. Portugal and the Lisbon area because they at least know they'll have international schools or something. It's, it's so fascinating in this wave how much, as I think about it more and more, how much latent demand there probably is and how bad and tight the supply situation is. Like, you know, we don't have uh, sort of 
situations that feel sort of natural for someone like Bitchell to move into that feel like sort of just moving in from the outside. Um, you, you know, st- uh, we don't have like good school situations, stuff like that. And that leads me into what I want to talk about is we have these other, all these projects for people moving abroad or starting up cities abroad, and they don't seem to address any of these supply dimensions well. Um, yeah. Like when you talk about like, you know, Praxis, Prospera, these, they seem to be on this completely different thing. So I know Nilrun, you have a lot of insight and criticisms of those. Can you talk a little bit about how and why they failed to meet the type of supply that Tim Look demands? Yeah, I, th- I think I'm, I'm really happy we're focusing in on the supply, actually. And I, I think, for the record, I think these supply constraints can be addressed. A lot of them, you know, are just making the visa program really clear. Uh, sure, Starlink or sometimes, really sometimes knowing, like, you know, what you're trying to target makes all the difference, of course. The, the good version yeah. of good arts law. Yep, exactly. And so... Yeah, I think, um, I think, yeah, now that we're aware of these supply constraints, and I think it does, it, it all relates actually a lot to families, but also the Korean thing where it's just like, you were never going to be a business owner inside of Korea and be integrated and assimilated into that society. Um, I'd say like the issue I see with current projects are, you know, I think like something, let's take Prospera, you know, so they got basically an autonomous zone within Honduras. I think it was passed a few years ago, and then the government changes. And there's been a lot of FUD in The Guardian about how it'll be shut down. Interestingly, it hasn't actually been shut down. So like, it's probably likely that Honduras will just allow it to continue. Um, so it's good from that perspective. I think it's, it's this weird kind of... I, I think there's some issues with the libertarian paradise in that they're not really focused on creating like an actual human society where, you know, you have schools, where you have services, we have like basic stuff that we liked in our American cities or even in good high functioning American town. For some reason, libertarians seem to just kind of ignore that. And so a project like Prospera, it is mostly just attracting single guys now. And like, it has a lot of value, right? Like our friends did do clinical trials there. It's cool that you can do kind of advanced gene editing therapies there. It's like interesting to have that, but it doesn't seem to be offering this kind of new supply where I'd be like, oh yeah, let me move my kids to, let me move my whole family to Prospera. I want my kids to be raised in a Prospera environment. Um, so I think that's that's the issue. I don't think libertarians in general have done a good job, even with the free state movement, right, in uh, New Hampshire, even when it's like close to home, they've not done a good job of creating a family-friendly environment where capable people would actually want to move their kids to that. I mean, it's named Prospera, right? Like the idea of I'm moving my family to Prospera <laughs> is the first line of like, you know, a dystopian horror movie. There's there's no way, you know, where they're doing that advanced gene editing. It's like, there's only one direction this goes. And it's like a, a eight foot tall man with octopus arms who's shooting and, lasers and the at fact his eyes that you run away. Right, and this goes to Paul Graham's thing, right? With what is my city telling me? Prospera right mm. now is telling me I can become a superhuman. That's not like <laughs> that, that's awesome for some people, but if that's the entire, if that's like the ethos of a place, it's not going to be where you want to raise a family. It's not going to be where people will be able to make really long-term investments that are kind of multi-generational in the way that we see good immigration happening and working. Okay, so that's like Prospera, and it's like, it's not a total joke because they do have stuff going and there there is some demand for let's let's do like, you know, genetic experiments. Um, as if, you know, video, if video <laughs> games have taught me nothing else, it's that like that demand will always be there. 
But then you have things that, on the surface, seem to be taking this problem more seriously and, like, trying to produce supply. Like, Prospera is trying to build, like, you know, an entirely new city, I want to say, in Eastern Europe somewhere. Um, uh, Praxis. Praxis. Yeah. Pra- I'm sorry, Praxis. Praxis. Prospera's branding is so, so strong. Um, Praxis is trying to do that. And then, uh, you know, the lo- obviously, you know, I think Saudi Arabia came out with their proposal for their, like... The big line. <laughs> The thing, the, the thing that's going to be really hard the to very... like clean the glass. It's going to get <laughs> yeah, very yeah. dingy. But like oh, they, those both do seem to be trying to address supply. Like you know, effort. Let's like put a ton of supply there. Let's make a whole city. Like get a couple million people. Let's make like a thing that takes like ten million people and put them in like you know the beginning of a sci-fi um, premise. Uh, so what's what's your take on? No run because I, I know you're not very high on those in our private conversations. What's your take on either why they've had trouble getting off the ground or what you think is the problem there? Mm. So I think you know, let's take Praxis. It has a lot of really good members. You know, I've listened to Dryden talk. He's 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 intelligent. Like he had a good interview with the other life. So these people aren't dumb. Um, they're high energy. It's not that. I think it's what they're try- what they're trying to bite off is this incredibly ambitious thing, which is good for sort of organizing people inside of New York, especially as sort of like a social club. And they're really succeeding on that, right? So they are getting really interesting, capable people together in New York. I think the danger that you have with this approach is like it is very hard to get people to leave the New York social scene. Like being a pioneer wasn't cool in the early days of America, Uh, even in like fairly advanced, like for the gold rush in California, like that wasn't cool as people who needed opportunity who were leaving, not people go because they're losers. Yeah, the, the losers go first. And so it's this very, uh, honestly, just like incredibly risky endeavor to try to get the most capable people inside of New York society, inside of like the old American elite networking together and then tell them, okay, cool, now you've networked together. Now drop all of your social <laughs> connections and just like go to Montenegro. It's like, uh, you know, that's that's not who we see going on the frontier. The people going on the frontier, it's been a lot more organic. It's the people who, yeah, maybe they maybe they're I wouldn't call them definitely not losers, but I'd say they're they're high energy people who see opportunity on the frontier who don't necessarily have as much opportunity at home. Those are the people who usually immigrate. And so it's very risky to kind of build up all of this existing organization just in New York and then expect mm-hmm. it to be able to port over to Montenegro at once. Yeah, it seems like very classic sort of startup failure modes where you just like you have this big idea, but you don't find a way to get that initial ratchet going. And your thing once it's even once your thing is at its big version, it's still it still needs to do that ratchet. And this, by the way, just for our listeners, uh, maybe most of you won't care at all, but I know some people can react negatively to the idea of frontier when we're talking about going into already you know, existing places. Uh, it has very, I mean, extremely colonial overtones uh, of like, you know, this being a blank, a blank slate when of course it's not. But I hope, I think, you know, our discussion earlier about the actual considerations of what would make it productive for a jurisdiction to do this, you know, adds some nuance to that. Like we're very aware of that. So just, you know, just throwing that out there that we're, we're extremely aware of the fact that like th- these are frontiers for the people going there. And I think for the place that's receiving them, it's probably if they want to make this work, uh, they probably have to try to make it more like a frontier um, and not just like we're going to replace everyone in our cities or something. And I think mm-hmm. and you've frontier kind of, also. Oh, go ahead, Mitchell. Oh, thanks. Um, I think frontier also means not like literally in, in land, but in sort of like 
of a new style of living. And I think that maybe it's an open mm-hmm. question of how new it, yeah. it ends up being, right? Like you can pitch it as, hey, the, I am the tip of the spear of the network age. I am someone who is is moving abroad and investing in these communities while simultaneously trying to build new networks that stretch across international boundaries, um, both financially and culturally. And, sure. and that's an awesome idea of the frontier of sort of starting to build these new networks. But it's also totally possible, right, that you pay lip service to these ideas, but what you all you end up really doing is um, making a startup that goes nowhere, sitting in your nice house and uh, paying your maid um, very cheaply to, to mm-hmm. like, clean and skimpy clothes or something. Um, and that so escalated I, quickly. <laughs> yeah. Uh, I, so I, it is the the frontier can be something meaningful, but it could also be um, you know a, a a distraction like from from what's going on, and we'll we'll see what 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 it'll be. Yeah, and I, I think in the interest like for Praxis, for example, like I, I wish them the best. If like I want the network age to succeed, so if we have people building like cool cities abroad, that is awesome. As we mentioned, mm-hmm. like our biggest issue is supply. So like I wish them the best. And then I would kind of just think about like how would I like if I was advising Praxis as we're advising, you know, like the kings and stuff. Um, what would I do? Like I would actually just do the Puritan model, like do the smaller scale settlement. Don't try to like bring a thousand people at once. Um, just have an outpost. So then you switch your ethos from being like, we are a social club within New York who will eventually build a city to we are a community in the States supporting the settlement abroad of pioneers. And so I would, I would just like encourage you, like put some shovels in the ground. Don't try to like wait till a thousand people Just start building the supply that we need today. I think supply is a great way to think of it. Uh, and I also just can't get over the fact that like all of Mitchell's ethical concerns come down to him really, really wanting the maids to wear skimpy clothes, but like not feeling okay about that. No, no, and no. And thinking he's explo- I, exploiting them. I, <laughs> I just I like, don't no, it's good you wrestle you, with these. you perverts uh, banging <laughs> the maids uh, unless they want to be banged. You know, that's all. That's all I'm saying. I'm glad. Do we want to end on that note, or is is that are we are we allowed to do that? Because I think when we hit you know supply hard, I think we've hit our big note well, and I think we've gotten to the right things. So I just want to like leave it on just consensual relations with the maids, yeah. while taking into account the power dynamics appropriately, uh, so as mm-hmm. not to overstep your position there. Because I think this is going to be just one of the biggest dilemmas of the network age that people deal with. Yeah, we're pro consent. Get your your uh, get your maid's consent. The the country you're moving to's consent. I'm turning this off. I'm I'm I'm, I'm ending this now. <laughs>